welcome everyone to this latest podcast from Freshfield's Bruckhaus Derringer. Today's topic is ransomware attacks, what boards of directors and senior executives need to know about colonial pipeline and similar attacks that may be coming. Usually we focus these podcasts on our clients and friends and legal departments. This one is aimed a little bit more at the board of directors and the C-suite, although obviously our legal clients are more than welcome to join in. I'm Boris Feldman. I'm a lawyer in the Silicon Valley office of Freshfields. And rather than introduce a bunch of people to you now that you'll forget by the time they talk, I'm going to introduce you to our colleagues as we hear from each of them. So we're going to begin with our newest colleague, Brock Dahl, who's resident in both the Silicon Valley and the Washington, D.C. offices. Brock joined us recently from the National Security Agency, where he was Deputy General Counsel for Operations. So if you hear any strange noises during the recording, it's probably his former bosses checking up on him. Brock, welcome to the firm. People have probably read a lot about Colonial Pipeline, or they've, they've listened to it as they've waited in line for gasoline. Could you give our audience the salient facts and maybe things that they might have missed on the Drudge Report? Thank you, Boris. It's exciting to be here. The Colonial Pipeline Company manages about 5,500 miles of pipeline uh, that's distributing gas and jet fuel across the southeast and east coast of the United States. Now, on May 7th, Colonial announced that it was shutting down its pipeline operations, meaning that that fuel would no longer be running through that 5,500 miles of pipeline. And while there wasn't a lot of information available at first, on May 10th, the FBI announced that the company had been the victim of something called the DarkSide ransomware. Now, DarkSide is a ransomware as a service platform that's a bit of a unique animal in the breach space. It's a construct where uh, criminal operators create a ransomware and then look for partners in order to take advantage of companies and distribute that ransomware. The partners that they seek to work with will in some fashion already have access or will develop access to the company. And then once they have that access, we'll deploy the ransomware in order to seek uh, a ransom. And what we know about the dark side ransomware is that it's a double extortion model, typically. That's one ransom that's requested for a decryption key in order to free up your systems. And then a second that's requested in order to return uh, or destroy any information or data that was potentially exfiltrated from the systems. All we really know about right now with respect to Colonial was that there was the first stage of that approach in order to seek decryption. Let's go now to London to our colleague Giles Pratt, who's head of Freshfield's intellectual property practice and has been involved with many clients on data and cyber issues. So Giles, welcome. Imagine that you're a senior executive of a company, and your chief information security officer texts you that someone or some group has penetrated your information systems, launched a ransomware attack, 
and is demanding a payment. What should you do as a senior executive from that first notification? Thanks, Boris. Well, this is really the press the red button moment and a time to get your core team around you and to engage your cyber incident response plan. Obviously, the priorities are going to be to contain the incident as best you can. You do hear stories about people running around to pull the cable out of the computer. It's not exactly like that, but people will be trying to limit the effect of the ransomware as best they can. Then it's really about making sure that you've got key lines of communication among all of the stakeholders that you need around you. It's IT, it's your cybersecurity team, it's legal, investor relations, PR, uh, and at some point it's going to be the right time to tell the board. Once you've got that team up and running, you're going to want to understand what systems and data are at stake. You want to review your systems and your position on backups. And you want to think about what you're going to do over the next 24 to 48 hours. That might be engaging with forensic vendors, external counsel, thinking about what other communications you're going to have to make externally, including obligations to notify regulators, how you're going to engage with law enforcement. And also you want to think about your insurance position. So there's quite a lot to do. This is an uninformed question. How can you do that on the firm's IT systems if you don't know whether the intruder is watching? That's a great question. I've heard some people effectively want to take their communications dark using a second line of comms in that type of incident. But really, uh, we tend to see that people want to use their normal lines of communication because that is most efficient, but also they will pick up the phone. Um, sometimes the old ways are the best. So I want to shift now, Giles, from the executive, the C-suite level to the board level. And now Kimberly Zelnick in our New York office, who's a senior person in investigations and has done many cyber breaches and intrusions when they've surfaced for clients. Kim, you're now advising the board. You're a member of the board. What are the first things you should ask management and what should your role as a director be? I think one of the important things is not to treat it any differently than you would if it was a different kind of situation. You should feel free to ask questions, even if you don't think cyber is in your wheelhouse, it seems technical. You want to know what's happening in order to address the situation. Who's in charge? What's happened? What are we doing to address this? Don't be scared to, to ask technical questions to make sure that you're really getting under the hood, because ultimately, as a director, you have a duty of oversight. You have a duty to understand and to be informed, and so that when you're making, if you're giving authority, um, if you're advising management uh, to, to go ahead with their action plan, that you've done that from an informed basis. Sometimes companies are a little reluctant to put out the bad news about a breach because yes. they're worried about spooking their users and getting hit in the market. What role do you think the board can play in probing a non-disclosure decision by management? As folks will know, there are circumstances in which there is a notification obligation. If, for example, and uh, you could have a GDPR notification obligation where you have to notify European 
regulators, if you have European consumers whose personal data has been affected. But there are also circumstances where notification may not be required. And so understanding that folks have done the right analysis to understand whether or not there's a, a mandatory obligation to notify or not. But on top of that, if the, there's a decision not to go to law enforcement, for example, which may be totally appropriate, understanding what's motivating that. And fundamentally, what you really want to know as a director is that management is doing the right things. One more question for you on the board level reaction. Can you envision any scenarios in which the board would need their own technical advisor on the breach or remediation issues? And if so, what should a director look for in deciding whether or not she should ask for the board's own advice? If it is sort of bet the company kind of breach where you just know invariably that there's going to be lawsuits on the other side because the breach is so significant, it's it's headline grabbing, a lot of people's data has been affected, then you very well might want to have your own advisors. But oftentimes that's not necessary, Boris. And in fact, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to rely on the advisors that the that the company has retained. We're now going to turn to the $64,000 question. Regrettably, it's probably the $64 million question. And for that, we're going to go to our money man, Nabil Youssef, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, who heads our U.S. sanctions and export controls practice, an area that might not immediately come to your mind when you're thinking about ransomware attack. So, Nabil, what should management and the board think about from a regulatory and statutory standpoint in deciding whether or not to pay the money? Thank you, Boris. Yeah, there are a lot of things that companies should think about when uh, the question comes up of whether or not to pay a ransom. And that includes the, the lawfulness of the ransom payment, practical challenges to actually making a payment, reputational harm, the potential contractual impacts. Uh, there are a number of legal regimes in the U.S., in the EU, in the U.K., abroad that a company should take into account when it's considering paying a ransom. First and foremost of those are going to be the sanctions rules. Actors in this space are often going to be not exactly the good guys, and uh, oftentimes they can be included on sanctions list. The, the sanctions regulators are admittedly a little bit behind on adding them to sanctions list, but if the recipient of a ransom is on a sanctions list, then the U.S. sanctions rules, EU, UK, Japan, Canada, could actually be a factor in deciding whether or not to pay a ransom. Uh, and the expectations from regulators on the due diligence that companies are going to do into the recipients of a ransom payment is, is accelerating dramatically. And that's just going to put companies on more and more notice that if they're paying a ransom, they have to be aware of who they're paying it to as much as possible. Sometimes you just can't and figure that out. If the recipient of a ransom payment is a, a, a sanctioned person on a sanctions list or located in a sanctioned country, there are things, though, that companies can do. They can meet with the regulators. They can talk to, for example, in the U.S. OFAC, in the U.S. Treasury Department. They might even need to go and get a, an, a specific license from OFAC in order to pay a ransom. This is still very much a, a space that's developing. The regulatory guidance is not as, as complete, I think, as even the regulators themselves would like it to be. On a related note, as Brock had mentioned earlier, in a ransomware attack, it's also entirely possible that data could have been exfiltrated. To the extent that foreign persons could have had access to export-controlled data on a company's systems, 
there's a whole separate set of considerations that would need to be taken into account with respect to potential mandatory or voluntary disclosures. There's certain access by certain foreign nationals to, for example, defense trade controlled information that would require a company to do a mandatory disclosure. So there's a lot of things to think about when considering whether to pay a ransom as well as to consider when it comes to potential regulatory disclosure obligations. So I don't want to get into the moral issues about is it right or wrong to pay the ransomware, but I wonder, Brock, if you have a sense in general when companies are hit with a ransomware attack, do they usually pay or do they usually not pay? There's a lot of great reporting out there. Selfos, uh, the cybersecurity company, just did a report about the amount of organizations that pay. And in fact, in the Colonial case, it's uh, fairly applicable since the highest percentage of those who pay are in the energy, oil, and gas sector. Now, an additional question to ask is the actual effectiveness of the payment. So when dealing with these criminal organizations, the executives and the board needs to ask themselves, how high a confidence do we have that when we make the payment, we're actually going to be delivered decryption keys that work? And in addition to the reporting about payments, there's increasingly data out there about the yield on these payments. What's the percentage of success when we make these payments? And decision makers should really review that data because the evidence is mixed that you actually get what you're paying for. I'm going to put Giles on the spot because he's the senior person on the podcast. If you were on a board, would you adopt a general rule or a very heavy presumption that you would not permit the company to make a ransomware payment? Or would it be more of an individual incident-driven analysis? It's a great question. And actually, I think most organizations take the view that they don't want to engage with with ransom demands in that way. The challenge, though, is where you are looking particularly at organizations that have a critical role to play in infrastructure and where they may not be prepared in terms of the backup resources that they can bring to bear, there they find themselves in a very difficult squeeze. You have seen examples recently, though, where even in a healthcare situation, governments have effectively resisted ransomware demands. Uh, and, And so actually, you will see, I think, quite a trend towards people wanting to say no, because they don't know where the story ends. On the topic of whether to pay, let's turn to the related question of who pays. And we're going back to London to our partner, Lauren Honeyben, who's one of Freshfield's resident experts on insurance. So Lauren, give us the environment on ransomware coverage now, which I think may be evolving week to week, and any tips that you have for senior management on the board on the right way to engage with your insurance companies. Thanks, Boris. So let's start with the situation where you do have cyber insurance. And it might seem obvious, but the first thing to do is to check whether a ransom payment would be covered by the insurer. So broadly, insurers have taken a rational economics approach. So it's better for them to pay out a smaller amount now than a larger amount uh, in the future uh, if the ransom payment isn't made. Um, So for the most part, insurance companies do cover ransom payments. 
However, there's a growing political and social pressure on insurers in some countries to stop these payments. And just recently, we've started to see some insurers pull this cover for public policy reasons. But if you do have cover, the key point is that the insurer does not make the decision about whether to pay extortionists. The policyholder makes the final call. And if that policyholder does decline to pay, the insurers should support it. In addition to ransom payments, most cyber insurance policies will cover your costs of investigating the incident, recovering data, uh, the restoration of computer systems and other sort of loss of income incurred by the business. And sometimes they can also cover third party coverages. So the cost of legally defending yourself against claims of GDPR breach and third party financial and reputational costs. Another point I think is worth highlighting is that insurers often provide staff to negotiate with hackers and other IT and PR services as well. But not to worry if you don't have specific cyber insurance. It's also worth checking whether you've got cover in your property liability or general liability or DNO insurance as well. Although these can be often silent on whether they cover the consequences of cyber attacks. In any event, there'll be notification requirements, so you'll need to contact your insurance providers to inform them of the attack. And I think it's important to note that cyber insurance can be a valuable component part in a larger risk management strategy. So, for example, the insurance underwriting process itself is fairly rigorous and raises awareness of cyber threats uh, and identifies how you should be responding. So it can be helpful in the round as well. If you're thinking about taking out cyber cover for the first time or renewing, The best strategy really is to prepare and engage early for that renewal process. So if I'm advising a board what to do and thinking ahead in terms of any cyber risks, that early engagement is really key. We're seeing a really sharp increase in both premiums and retentions for cyber policies. So in 2020, the average uh, premium increased by 28%. So it's pretty high and part of the cost benefit analysis that you need to think about when taking out cyber cover. And the more incidents there are, the more rigorous you can expect the underwriting process to be. Okay, thank you, Lauren. We're now going to turn to the regulatory and law enforcement side. And Kim, in addition to investigations, you do a lot of white collar and enforcement work. We've heard a little about this from Nabil and Brock, but from your perspective, from the time your client learns of the intrusion and the demand, How should they interact with the regulatory and law enforcement authorities in what we'll call an air quote their headquarters country? So I think, first of all, it's important to consider, of course, if you have a mandatory notification obligation. So under European rules, you might have a very short window under which you have to notify folks that there's been an incident. But putting that aside, there's a question of, do we call the FBI in the United States? Do we make a report? Whom else do we tell? A lot of times there are separate determinations that you have to make. And what is the purpose of engaging with law enforcement in a particular jurisdiction? Is the FBI going to be helpful? Are they going to be focused on just finding the bad actor? And will that interfere with what the immediate objectives are in terms of securing the environment, um, notifying consumers? And I think the the mistake that people most make is thinking that they have to make all of these decisions immediately as opposed to thinking through the different regulatory environments in the different jurisdictions, when folks would expect to hear from you. And also, why are we calling now? What are we going to be saying? What information do we have to provide? 
And in fact, while some decisions need to be made very, very quickly, other decisions can be made a little further down the road with the benefit of more time and reflection and understanding what it is we hope to achieve with a different regulator. Is it your experience, having dealt with companies in these situations, that they're appropriately focused on regulatory authorities outside their home country, or do they tend to forget about the other geographies, perhaps until later than they should? I think that's exactly what happens sometimes for us, is that people get very focused on just the notification obligation, and they don't think more broadly about whether they may have other regulatory soft or hard obligations. Thinking about it in the round and thinking about all the different jurisdictions and taking an assessment, and again, not feeling necessarily that you have to decide everything in the first 72 hours is really important. And having a strategy. Different regulators are going to have different desires for how much information they want to, how much they even want to know. And so to thinking about every regulator and where they sit and what your relationship is, how many customers do you have in that region? Are you a regulated entity that is going to factor into how you're going to approach these kinds of circumstances? Coming into this recording session, I would have assumed that when a company is hit by a ransomware attack, the government views the company as the victim. Giles, has that been your experience? I think it depends on which authority you're looking at. So there are organizations out there that are really there to help. So for example, in the UK, you've got the National Cybersecurity Center. They see themselves as intelligence gathering, sharing, giving advice, trying to coordinate with other similar authorities around the world. There are other authorities that are, that are there really to assess how well you've done. Uh, so Kim uh, has alluded to data protection authorities in Europe, where there is personal data at stake in a ransomware attack. Then in that situation, when you notify the, the data protection authorities, they're probably going to look at the incident as really a possible symptom of something underlying which is not right within the organization. So the question that they'll be asking, you know, is this really just a bad thing that happened to a good person? Or was there a reason why the attacker got in? And we see time and time again, authorities using incidents of whatever nature, ransomware is obviously you know, a very timely example, as a way of probing an organization's general security protocols, understanding you know, what measures they've taken to ensure that their cybersecurity posture is up to standard, and thinking about how organizationally they've put themselves in a good place so that they know how to look after people's data. Before we get to the issue of public disclosure, I want to stick with company as victim or something else. Brock, first, how often do you think these attacks involve someone on the inside? Is that just something in spy novels, or is it a real problem for the companies that have significant cyber breaches? Based on the public reporting, it continues to be the case that the vast majority of data breach scenarios involve an insider. Now, the rise of ransomware and the, the crime for hire phenomenon generally can be disconnected from that. You do have the ransomware gangs relying on inside information, but that may be information that was acquired through malfeasance on uh, outside actors' parts, not by anyone on the inside. Nonetheless, when you look at the overall pie and ransomware by outside gangs is just part of that pie, the insider threat continues to be a very significant problem with which entities must grapple. 
In many areas of investigation, companies like to have the outside experts retained by outside counsel so that they can assert a work product privilege. Do you think that matters so much in a cyber attack or not to worry about it? Kimberly? So it's a, it's a complicated question. And, and part of it is, uh, Boris, is that people expect that when outside counsel retains an outside firm to do their cyber investigation, that that's going to be privileged. That's not actually necessarily the case. Um, the rules are, are complicated. They vary by jurisdiction. And even if something would be protected in the United States, it doesn't mean it would be re- protected in the UK and vice versa. Generally, whenever you're conducting an investigation, you need to be really thoughtful about what you're putting into writing because it very well may see the light of day. And so don't assume you're going to get that privilege protection. Kim, if I can really just second your thoughts that you know, one of the big mistakes that lots of organisations make in the immediate aftermath of an incident is not thinking holistically across the world about where all of their documents that they create are going to go. And the really easy play from all of the authorities, you know, particularly those in Europe and the UK, is please provide to me a copy of all of the reports, interim or otherwise, that have been prepared in connection with this incident. And they're thinking about their own privilege rules. They're not looking, for example, to the US to see if it's a protected work product. And they will expect disclosure if it is not privileged in the local sense. I'd now like to broaden the discussion beyond just ransomware attacks to cyber breaches more generally. In Giles and Kimberly, how involved should the board be in that process, in investigating, in remediating? Is that best done by the full board or is it a select group or committee? How, how should they prepare in advance and then how should they triage the situation when there's a breach? Giles, you want to try first? Typically, I would see there as being one sponsor at board level for the incident response. You know, what you absolutely don't want to do is to slow everyone down by having you know, too many cooks. But absolutely, there is value in showing in an investigation that there is a senior stakeholder who takes responsibility for and is checking in at the relevant milestones throughout that investigation. I absolutely agree with, with Giles. You don't want to create a situation where you're slowing everybody down. That said, you also... The, the whole board should should be interested, particularly if it's a very significant breach, and should ensure that there are updates um, and you know really keeping track of having a sense of the overall situation. And there's a point, isn't there, at the end of the incident, really taking stock of what the organisation has learned, how you're going to implement that in terms of how they roll forward their governance and making sure that you know, they are as well prepared as they possibly can be should something happen again. No, absolutely. Too often there's a there's a tendency, I think, to say, great, we're done, it's behind us. But oftentimes you could have a smaller incident, you could find yourself unfortunately in that situation again, sometimes not even that much later. And so whether or not you took the appropriate steps to remediate uh, coming out of a smaller incident could be very significant. And if you, if you don't take the right steps, could really become a problem down the road. Potentially, there's a broader lesson to be drawn from the points that you two just made. If you've watched movies about spaceships from the United States, whenever something goes wrong, they ask Houston for the procedure. Some boards actually have a similar process, and it's not limited to cyber. It may apply for an investigation of misconduct by an executive or to financial inquiry into revenue recognition issues. And rather than wait until the problem hits the fan, 
they actually have set in place procedures in advance for how they're going to do that. Independent firms that they can go to in pre-position to handle the investigation. And it seems to me, given how quickly your cyber problems arise, more so even than an accounting issue typically, or some kind of misbehavior issue, it might be appropriate for a board to say, let's have a NASA-like procedure in place for an intrusion. Let's do sort of a dry run and know whom we're going to call and what the chain of command is. I want to turn to liability. First, we're going to do potential shareholder liability, and then we're going to talk about users and consumers. And for shareholders, I'm very proud to welcome our colleague Shannon McGovern from the Securities Litigation Practice in Freshfield's New York office. So Shannon, welcome. With respect to cyber breach and ransomware, how big a risk is that to directors of the company and what situations put them at greatest risk? Uh, thanks, Boris. So we've already seen in recent years that one of the areas that shareholders have been focusing on and bringing claims against directors are for perceived failures to properly oversee company risks. And in the cybersecurity context, that would mean uh, allegations that the board did not properly implement its duties to make sure that there was a protocol in place sufficient within the company to identify and mitigate risks, or if there was such a protocol that the board did not act in accordance with its fiduciary duties to the company and its shareholders by properly overseeing that protocol. Uh, there are other kinds of claims that are possible as well against directors, though perhaps more likely to be brought against management as opposed to the board. And those would include securities class actions or enforcement actions regarding disclosure. So let's say a, a significant data breach occurs of some kind, there's bad press, there's a, a, a stock drop that results. A shareholder may bring a suit alleging that the manager of the company and its board misled investors in prior public disclosures about the risks of such an event happening, or perhaps did not provide full and accurate information at the time of some disclosure of a breach or incident that actually occurred. There are many sort of fake ransomware overtures where companies for some period may be getting notes from somebody saying, we're going to break in or we're breaking in or we've broken in. How big a problem do you think it is from a liability standpoint if it turns out that the company had been warned about a potential ransomware attack in the past? I think that uh, a shareholder looking to bring a suit against the directors will be laser focused on trying to identify red flags that the, the board should have been aware of at an earlier point in time. So something like you described would be the exact kind of thing that they would want to put into a, a shareholder complaint to allege that the board was not living up to its duties of oversight um, and monitoring the company for those risks. So I think it's important that, as Kim said earlier, the board make sure that it informs itself of the issues uh, in this cybersecurity space and uh, has a dialogue with management who will be primarily responsible for making sure that the uh, appropriate protocols are followed to help address any future claims that the board was not doing everything it was supposed to as the entity charged with overseeing the company and its significant enterprise level risks. 
Thank you, Shannon. Let's shift from potential shareholder liability to collective claims by users or consumers. How big a risk is that to a company, Kimberly? And how do you see that risk playing out in the U.S. versus the U.K. and the EU? So certainly the U.S. remains the hot spot of this kind of litigation, Boris. There's just no question about that. But one of the interesting dimensions of, of, of data and cyber incidents has been that oftentimes a lot of the regulatory action and a lot of the, the investigations will precede that and they'll take place in, in Europe, uh, in the U.K., and so oftentimes what you'll see is you'll develop a record with data authorities outside the United States, and then that will become the basis for litigation that will really be led out of the United States. But I, I don't want to suggest that it's only the United States where we're seeing these kinds of collective actions. For example, there's been recent significant litigation in the UK that's been launched, but there's also places like Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, where there really are um, you know, significant consumer class action risk. And then it's also a watch this space situation, because as folks may know, in the EU, there's legislation coming on board in 2022 that is going to make it a lot easier to bring these kinds of collective class actions on the back of cyber breaches. I want to close by getting all of your free advice to your niece. Imagine that your niece has just been appointed to the board of a significant public company. And she says to you, okay, I've been reading about these gas lines in, in the United States and these ransomware attacks. How should I handle myself as a director? What, what's the right approach on this? I did not work at the National Security Agency, your niece says. So tell me what I need to do. Let's start with Shannon. What would you advise this new director about things to do in advance that will give you a record that you're very comfortable defending in the Delaware Court of Chancery? Well, I think the answer depends in part on the role that the new board member will be assuming. So every member of the board, regardless of the committee appointments he or she may have, has a general duty to oversee significant risks facing the company, including the cybersecurity risks we've been talking about. Um, but that obligation is heightened for folks who are on a committee charged with elements touching on this. So a risk management committee, an audit committee, maybe even a dedicated um, technology committee of some kind. Uh, but regardless, it's making sure I think that the board understands what the company is already doing gets frequent reports from the appropriate people, um, whether that's a dedicated you know, security information officer or, or someone else, and does their best to become reasonably literate in the issues. I, I don't think there's an expectation that everyone's going to have the same level of familiarity with the technical issues as the managers charged with overseeing these things day to day. But I think it's common that new board members have a, a bit of a a long period where they're getting to know the company, perhaps this industry, if it's new to them. And in that context, cybersecurity should be one of the things that they put on their to-do list to make sure they understand the environment, particularly facing the company they'll be helping to oversee. Good advice, Shannon. Nabil, you spend a lot of time with boards in very messy situations. How would you advise your niece or nephew about a BS detector? What would you say to her about when her, her normal reliance on indifference to management perhaps should be tempered because the story might not be right? What would you tell her? Well, Boris, I'd tell her to take a look at 
the regular sort of regulatory compliance risk assessments that the board probably reviews for the company from time to time and and think really hard about whether management is actually taking all of that into into account if the company has defense contracts or has technology that is export controlled or is particularly high risk or or sensitive obviously they need to be thinking about that and also um, thinking about whether you should challenge management a bit on the identity of the party that is demanding a ransom. Uh, simply saying that the party is is not identifiable is going to be fine in certain circumstances, but really putting pressure on that and testing one's BS detector on whether or not the ransom recipient is truly unidentifiable or if they are identifiable, whether they are actually a party that the company from a legal or reputational perspective would want to pay a ransom to. That again ties into the notion that it's probably good for our clients to think through these issues before they get that text at 4 a.m. saying they're in. Kim, it's now your, let's say it's your cousin. We've promoted the relative now. It's your cousin going on the board. And she asks you, should I periodically bring in folks to do almost an audit of our cyber procedures? Is there a role for that? Is that more of a management role versus a board role? What can she point to to establish that she was paying attention and not ignoring red flags? It's what Nabil was saying. It's almost like anything else. Uh, you, know, you shouldn't treat this as sort of something that you don't you don't want to touch or it's too technical and I don't understand it. You want to really be able to get in the hood and ask questions. And I think the best way to get comfortable is to probe and to ask the same kinds of questions you would in a different situation. If we are auditing other kinds of things, why are we not auditing this? Um, you know, similarly, if you read about an incident in the newspaper, Colonial Pipeline, what are we doing to ensure that we don't have that kind of catastrophe here? Again, asking, I think very importantly, Boris, before there's an incident, not when you're getting that call at 4 a.m. so that you actually understand what it is that the company is doing. So you're going to be more sophisticated when you get that call at 4 a.m. You're going to know who the names are, hopefully, of you know the, the people who are in charge of handling this at the company. You're going to have a sense of what it is we're doing, what we think our exposure is, what we think our risk is. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, even if the answer is we're not doing an audit, well, why aren't we doing an audit? You're really pressing people to understand are we doing the right things uh, in order to, to safeguard against these kinds of problems? As most of you probably know, in the Old Testament, there are two occasions in which the text discusses the blessing and the curse. So, of course, we're going to end with that, Brock being the blessing, and I think Mr. Pratt will address the curse. Let's do the blessing part first. Brock, as an observer of many breaches from the government side. Do you have any examples of a company that's really handled it right? I think you can look at, as may be no surprise, FireEye's handling of the beginning of the SolarWinds event. In particular, their communications at the beginning of the event. The communications that address things like, what do we know? What do we not know? And what's the timeline for answering the unknowns? A lot of times companies face problems in the market simply because of uncertainty. And we saw that playing out here with Colonial Pipeline. The second thing that you saw demonstrated uh, with FireEye's particular handling was the results of preparation in advance. So to the point that you made earlier, what do you have in place that will permit you to run through scenarios quickly? And have you planned for those different scenarios? 
Giles, you know, I don't think you're cursed at all, but you've been through many of the largest incidents globally. What is the one thing that you've seen a company do, whether it was one that we were involved in or not, that that you drew a lesson from and you said, well, they never should have done that. What's the, the one piece of negative advice you'd give in terms of don't make this mistake? Well, Boris, if you'll forgive me mixing up my curses and my commandments, really, I think, I think the issue is whether or not you are coveting your neighbor. The problem that we see is that lots of organizations benchmark their cybersecurity posture against others in their sector. And actually, the world will judge them against what they should have done, even though their neighbors weren't doing enough. So the question is how to look to the right standard. Uh, and there are lots of great reference points for that. And frankly, Brock is the authority for many of them. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you all join us today. If you have any follow-up questions, you can reach out to our cyber experts around the world. Thank you and have a good day.